You failed, John. You failed last week. You fail every day when you get up and exist. This Sunday at Elimination Chamber will be no different. At the hands of the shield, John Cena, you will fail again. That's right. He will fail because John Cena is a failure. That's why we don't like you, John. You're not just a superstar, you're a philosophy. It's not what you've done, it's what you fail to do. The example you fail to set every day. Smiling the day away in your little bubble. See, in your world, there are no consequences. You can do or say whatever you want. No consequences. That's not the real world. That's not the world we live in. That's what we call the John Cena problem. He's the problem. He's been the problem for the past decade. We, the Shield, are the solution. And welcome to Wild Thing, the John Moxie Career Review Podcast. I'm your host, Joey O'Darty, and we are here to discuss the career of John Moxley. And specifically in this episode, we will be looking back at the Shields first WrestleMania. And that little intro there, I found it very amusing to hear Roman Reigns telling everyone that John Cena is the problem that he's been dominating for years and the Shield are a solution. And how ironic that now, years later, Roman is the problem. <laughs> he is the man who is built so strong that no one else looks like a legit challenger in WWE. But that's a story for another day. We um, got a quick DM to go through before we go into this week's episode. We had Sojo come into our DMs this week and ask us, what do we think here at the podcast of John Moxie's career probably changing if his contract's expiring and possibly moving to WWE. Uh, my own thoughts and opinions on it is that you never, ever say never in professional wrestling. While I believe that probably CM Punk and John Moxley of everyone in AEW are perhaps not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. You know, if you read his book, you know, you get a good sense of how he felt in his final few months, maybe there in WWE. But if you're asking me, I think he's not going anywhere. But you never say never. You've seen Cody Rhodes leave recently and you see him being presented as the star he was in AEW, maybe even more so. And if you're Mox, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, you know, maybe if I go there now, maybe they treat me as I want to and I'll have a bigger stage and, you know, things can go different this time around. Now, I don't know if that's the case or not, but we'll see what happens with Cody. He's only been two weeks into his run, so it's very early to say he's going to be booked like a star all the way through his new contract there at WWE. And 
the one thing I also will say as well, Mox was very critical of WWE in his, his book and in his talk, his Jericho podcast, where he more or less described his last few months in WWE. He didn't exactly go full CM Punk and you know basically buried him he didn't go nuclear he was very diplomatic i felt he took a high road quite a lot and that always says to me as a man who didn't want to necessarily completely burn his bridges and even if he did WWE they'd probably take him back anyway wouldn't they they take back everyone you look at mickey james ultimate warrior they would have bit your hand off to take cm punk back for a couple of years ago there's no doubt in my mind that WWE would easily take him back and there's no complete you know 100% certainty that he would never go back there so never say never I'd like to think he's not going to go back and I think he's best suited in AW but sure the future is obviously it's ever changing and you never say never in wrestling so but also it's been a very good week or so for Mox he's had some pretty good matches with Jade Lethal an epic battle with Biff Busick at, um, at Bloodsport and a pretty good match with AJ Gray but he's mostly in the news for his match with Wheeler Yuta from Rampage just last Friday and what a match it was probably about four and a half maybe 4.25 for me it was a pretty good match it was probably on a little bit of the short side but Wheeler Yuta in particular he was amazing he's a guy he is very young he's still learning his craft but he showed that he can hang with the best of them and the best circumstances what a match if you haven't seen it go out of your way to watch it but then again he has another big one now coming up against Will Osprey now this Friday at Windy City, City Riot so listen it's been a busy busy time for John Moxley and he definitely has a body of work in 2022 that could get see him win the wrestler of the year award it's been great and today, guys, we are joined by a really cool girl that I want to have on here just to be able to chat with. Their opinions are always very well articulated and always well received. It is the magic writing girl themselves from Voices of Wrestling. It is Jerry Evergood. Jerry, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good, thank you. Um, I appreciate you having me on to talk John Moxley and a certain period of his career. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to it. No, no, the, the pleasure is all mine. Just to get someone on the show that obviously has a you know their insights that I value so well, and someone that obviously, like I said, articulates their points very well. I like to be able to see exactly what you thought at this particular time and get into exactly what you think is professional wrestling's pinnacle. But we start off by first of all saying, what got you into professional wrestling? What was the angles or matches that you said, "Wow, this is for me." Well, what first got me into it was my grandfather. My grandfather was a huge Mid Atlantic wrestling fan. Ooh, um, he and yeah, he was very old school. Um, he 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 went to a lot of shows. Used to shake his fist at Ric Flair in a high school gymnasium. I don't have like vivid memories, but my parents tell me I used to sit on his lap and watch pro wrestling, and that's what got me started. When my memories start, is my dad rented me a tape of WrestleMania Seven, WWS WrestleMania Seven. That's the first wrestling event I can vividly remember watching. And Hulk Hogan and Sergeant Slaughter was the main event. And embarrassed to admit this now, but the match. I was so into as a kid was there was a blindfold match between Rick Martell and Jake Roberts. And I thought two people being blind and trying to fight was the coolest thing ever because I was really into Jake Roberts at the time. Scared of him, but was really into him. And um, I just loved the larger than life. Like, these were my, I didn't read comic books. These were my superheroes. The wrestlers were my superheroes. You know, Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, Randy Savage, when he became a good guy again. What really got me to wrestling was SummerSlam 91. 
Um, we, it was the first pay-per-view I watched live as it happened. We watched it on questionably legal cable. <laughs> I remember for the very first match of the show, the sound would not work. And as they were trying to get the sound to work, I made my own cheering and booing noises so there could be sound because I really needed that sound because I was such a sensory kid. What, what age were you? I was, this was 91, so I was nine years old. Good year. Good year to get into things. Yep, I was nine years old and... I hated Mr. Perfect because the whole, um, I hate it as a kid because as a kid, I was always, you know, beating into me, not beating into me, but, you know, always made to me that no one was perfect. And here you had this cocky, arrogant, swarmy guy going, I'm perfect and no one can touch me. So when Bret Hart beat him and made him scream and give up, Bret Hart became my favorite wrestler. Yeah, what a match. That match sticks with me so much because of what it meant to me as a fan and how it really hooked me into pro wrestling was that match was just watching Bret Hart shut this punk up who then disappeared. I didn't know as a kid he was injured. I just thought he was so embarrassed that he couldn't wrestle again. Yeah, his back was fucked, really. You know, and I can. Yeah, his. Oh, you, I used to think it was ears were just fucked from the coach whistling in his ear the whole. <laughs> he has that coach, and I hated that kid. It's like I hated him as an adult when I rewatched those matches, but SummerSlam '91 is a pay per view I hold dear in my heart just because it was the pay per view that cemented my fandom. And it had a lot of good feud enders. Like, maybe not all the matches were great, but everything seemed like it had a point, almost. Like, Virgil defeating Ted DiBiase and winning the Million Dollar Championship. Big Boss Man sending the Mountie to prison. You know, it just had all, it just, yeah, you know, it just had all these fan-fulfilling moments, you know. And then, of course, the Ultimate Warrior running to the back and not being seen again until WrestleMania 8. But, you know, um, <laughs> you know, as a kid. I'm happy that that day. Yeah, but as you know, as a kid, I didn't know anything about injuries or backstage politics. These were larger-than-life characters to me, good versus evil. You know, I had the characters I was deeply scared of. Like, the un- when The Undertaker put people into body bags, I sincerely thought, well, never seen them again. I hope they enjoyed it. I hope they had a good life. Listen, Taker so, terrified a lot of kids back then. I would have been, what, 91? I would have been, what, seven? Yeah, I was terrified of Taker. He just looked like that dead cold stare. I was like, I'm having none of that. Uh, yeah, um, I'm going to tell myself a little bit. You know who really scared me as a kid? Papa Shango. I kid yes. you not. I would turn off the TV when Papa Shango came on, just in case his voodoo came through the TV. It's like, nope. That angle nope. with the warrior was just like, oh my god! I, I, oh my I, god! I was young, but I, I bought that shit. I really yeah. did. Jake Roberts had an Ultimate Warrior bit by the snake. As a kid, it freaked me out. I wrote an article about this when Jake Roberts sipped the cobra on Randy Savage. I was in a hospital when it happened, and because of my reaction, wrestling was not allowed to be watched anymore. <laughs> that was because I went game. ballistic. I went ballistic. You know, they're like, they're like, it's not real. I'm like, how can you? And of course, he found out later the snake actually did bite him and wouldn't let go because apparently Randy Savage is delicious. And so as a kid, I just have so many great memories around pro wrestling from that age, 9 to 10 to 11, back when I still bought it. You know what I mean? Like I thought what was happening was life or death, good versus evil. I was sunk in. These were my superheroes. I just have so many fond memories, and I'm glad I got to experience pro wrestling under that lens for a period of time. And I could talk to you all night about it, but we have to move on to a little bit of John Moxie being as that's what the podcast around. So when was the first time you got introduced to Dean Ambrose or John Moxie? What was the first memories of him? What was your impressions? I knew about him before he signed with WWE, but I can't pretend I really watched much of him because at the time my indies access was very limited. With that being said, the buzz, with that being said, I did have 
every now and then a chance to watch Florida Championship Wrestling, and I watch bits and pieces of his feud with Regal, and that's my first introduction to him. And I remember just something unhinged about him that really caught my eye. Um, you know, there was just there was just something, and I mean this not in an insulting way. I just mean just in that there was always an element of danger. Something wasn't there. You know what I mean? There was something off about this guy, and he would hurt you if you just looked at him the wrong way. And it didn't feel corny. It didn't feel over the top like you would get later in WWE. It felt like there was just a natural dangerous element to this guy, and his fear of Regal really helped put that over with the way he would just put Regal out. That was my first glimpse of, okay, this is someone I should keep an eye on. He definitely came across as authentic, at least. You know, like, the one thing I would say is, like, he, you felt that this guy could fuck you up. If you like, like you see him and he's barged into the ring in modern day wrestling, you think if he bumps into the wrong guy, this wrong guy is going to find out exactly what Mox is all about. He just has that feel of he is going to kick the shit out of you if you look at him quick. Yeah, like some wrestlers, and I'm not going to give names, but some wrestlers, you know, they make the mistake of trying to go all out with being unhinged and crazy. They make faces or they, sh- you know, they shout or they just do extremely over exaggerated body. And Moxley does some exaggerations but it's not over the top it's more it's just his signature that's just how he is and that's just how he moves and that's just what he does it doesn't come off as a big top act if you will and i think that what makes him stand out more than other people who try to portray the type of characters he portrays well this show here we're going to be looking at today is of course just after his debut he's already come off a very big tlc match with uh, his shield brothers of course Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns against Daniel Bryan, Kane, and of course the big, powerful over, super over Ryback. But what is your first opinions of, of course, of his teammates, Rollins and Reigns? Where do you stand on them then, and where do you stand on them now? I was much bigger on Rollins then than I am now. Um, I really liked Rollins back then. Like he wasn't much on the microphone, but he was really at the time impressive in the ring and. As part of a six-man, a three-man unit, he really shined because everybody added something to the equation. And Rollins added the high-flying, the daredevil, the fast pace. And then you had Roman, who I've actually always liked Roman maybe more than most. Like, I'm not ignoring his flaws or his repetitiveness or the fact that some of his matches fall short, but he was like the enforcer. He was the big guy, the equalizer. When they got thrown around, they tagged Roman in. Roman would bring things back up to their side, you know? And Roman was always going to be a star. You could tell Roman had, he's going to be our guy written on him early on. I was in the crowd, Royal Rumble 2014, when Roman lost to Batista, and we all wanted Roman to win. And during this period, Roman just, Roman just came off badass. Like, he, he talked a little, but he didn't, it didn't feel as forced as his promos later on would. And when he hit that spear, it just it just looked like it was knocking the soul out of people sometimes with how hard he would hit that spear. And I liked all three of them. Um, believe it or not, even though I call myself a John Moxley fangirl now, of the three, Ambrose was probably the one I was into at least as a unit. And not that Ambrose was doing anything wrong, just Rollins and Roman were just two that just caught my eye and I gravitated towards at the time more than Ambrose, but Ambrose again had that unhingedness, you know, like that uncontrollable, you don't know what he's going to do factor. And that was his, 
addition to the equation is he he did not he wasn't the glue that brought them together. He was the dynamite that could blow everything apart if he so choose. It's a very eloquent way of putting it. And see, that's what I mean when you have the articulate skills to be able to, you know, describe this way, way much better than I ever will be. But of course, we get into the meeting things. It's 2013 now. It's January and Punk is really more, he has these guys called The Shield who are running interference for him mostly. And he has a fuse with The Rock and The Rock is obviously, you know, he's finding things hard against the Rita Forum one sort of you know, scenario. So what's your opinion of, John Moxley's January here. How did him, the Shield, fare for you? They felt like they were kind of treading water to me. Like they were doing the, you know, we are punks muscle thing. And I thought after their match in December, their incredible match in December, I thought, while there was obviously a connection with Punk from the very beginning, I thought they needed to start splitting away from him. And they would soon enough. And, um, but, you know, they had that thing at the Royal Rumble where, they weren't allowed to interfere, so they had to have the lights turn off. Yes. And, and you didn't see the shield, but other than glimpses because of, you know, cameras and flashing lights, but you know it's the shield. That's where it was supposed to be. And that was kind of the biggest thing in January, and it was okay, but I really didn't need blackout shield interference in my rock punk match, which I was already not that big on to begin with. And... I wish they had gotten a big time match at the Royal Rumble instead to keep things going. They weren't even in the Rumble match themselves, even as a collective or an individual. They just were basically they were hidden from the show completely. Hidden from the show completely. Which if I and let's be honest, they had quickly become one of the hottest acts. And when you have a hot act, I would be sure. I, I don't want to burn them out, obviously, but on the big shows, you definitely want to feature them in a very prominent way. And they were not featured in a prominent way other than, you know, us not being able to see what they actually did because of story purposes. And that was disappointing because I felt, even if it was just all three of them entering into the Rumble separately, and then maybe getting a few moments as the trio you had to overcome to win the Rumble, I thought that could have been badass. You know, if Cena had to overcome all three members of the S.H.I.E.L.D., Yes, we would all complain that Sheena would defeat him, but at least it would be, at least it would put them in a prominent spot, and at least it would give some fuel to the Rumble to have these three well-oiled units work together to try to dominate this Rumble and make it almost impossible for anyone else to have a real chance at winning it. You, you touch on that, that, you know, they're such a good unit. The one thing I would say is maybe it's a good thing that they weren't in the rumble from a WWE creative point of view because we probably would have got that, oh, can they coexist? It's every man for themselves. Will they turn on each other? And they, they, to be honest with you, this, this faction did not need this. They were the, no. built as a unit and they were continually strongly pushed as a unit. And any sort of dissension or anything, I think, would have you know probably taken the shine off them a little bit. Especially that early in, I, I agree with you. Be, I mean, like later on, obviously, they would have their dissension, but you can do it later on because by that time they're well established and, you know, you're, you're beginning to wonder what more we can do with them after that. But at the beginning, you need them as a unit at all time. Like, no disagreements, no big major blow ups. You know, they're on the same page. They're all giving each other the, you know, the fist in the middle of the ring. They're just, they stand together, they stand one and all, and they will screw you. Then they will screw you up. I agree. 
Well, like that's the thing now. Like they've not necessarily been booked weak, but like I say, they they've been kept strong when they need to. You've been taking out a few people, a few legends here, you know, for over the course of these few months, and they come now towards the elimination chamber and the build to that really starts off on January 28th when the Cena is, of course, challenging either The Rock or CM Punk to a match. And he is, of course, as The Shield do, they come in and they kick ass. What was your opinions of the, the sort of build towards this match and how do you feel it went down? I think it gave them three really good opponents to have at the Elimination Chamber. Because, you know, it was Cena, who was WWE's biggest star. Sheamus, who's a consistent wrestler. You know, depending on what, you, regardless of how you may feel about him, he's a consistent wrestler. And it also included Ryback, who at the time was super over. Oh, super over. I think we sometimes forget how over Ryback was for a period of time in WWE. He was super, it feed me more chance for loud. So I thought this was a very good three. Like, yes, obviously it's kind of a oddball collection of three wrestlers to throw at the Shield, but... All three of them had something to present to the Shield to give the Shield, you know, more ammo as they continue to build their resume. A legend, I've already made legend, a consistent wrestler, and a hot at the moment Ryback. That's a good that that's good thinking. It gives them three big names to compete against and beat. That's I like that idea, and I thought it gave them a bit more to do other than just be punks lackeys. And like you also had the additional sort of side story of. Know Vince McMahon, Brad Maddox, Paul Heyman, obviously coming in collection. Of this, do you think that was something that was necessary for the Shield and you know Dean Ambrose to get over, or is this just WWF bollocks at its best? It's not necessary, but I don't think it was extremely detrimental either. I just it's just WWE they like to do an added ingredients that don't make improve the dish. Um, like in this case, it didn't make the dish worse, but. It was fine as is. You know, the Shield is just a badass unit who wants to spread their version of justice and making things the way they think things they're supposed to be. And while the association with Heyman in the beginning was fine, you know, as a good introductory period, the Shield as a unit is someone who would eventually just blow off on their own and do what they think needs to be done on their own as a unit together. I don't think it really added anything, but I don't think it hurt, thankfully. You know, because a lot of the time when when WWE adds unnecessary elements, it hurts and waters things down badly. That seems to be their MO usually around this time period. And of course, as we know now in hindsight, that just gets progressively worse, unfortunately for the viewer. But um, it could be, again, so, like you say, it's a really solid unit in terms of star power. You've got Royback, who was, like you say, he was crazy over. Like, I really genuinely forgot how much of a star this guy could have been like he the fans ate everything up every Phoebe Moore was so loud like it was just it was unbelievable how we not only did they get this guy so over so quickly but how quickly they dropped the ball on Robert's shelf life may have never been that long anyway it's one of those you can't really say but I don't think there would have been any harm if they struck in the short term while it was hot you know when someone's hot you go with it let them set things ablaze for a bit. And then when they die down, you move on to the next person. And they, instead with Ryback, they used him to get other people over. And it worked, but it also cooled Ryback down to the point that he never got as hot as he was at that period. And I'm not the biggest Ryback fan in the world, but I am a fan of wrestling making sense. And it just made sense for Ryback to have been given the, the ability to do a lot more than he was at the time. Like, he didn't even win, if I remember correctly, at that WrestleMania that year, which 
which is insane. He should have at least gotten a mania victory, even if it was Mark Henry, you know? Um, and I hate to do it so dismissively. Sometimes you just throw up your hands in the air and go, it's WWE. It is. Unfortunately, I used to think, like, you could have easily had a scenario where Cena and Rock still fought each other and still had this really big epic match while keeping the Punk uh, as champion, while Roy back, of course, gets his final revenge that he deserved against him at a big stage. And he could have won the Rumble and went on to Mania to fight Punk. And it may be like, like he would have missed out on Taker Punk, but like it was a natural story progression. I think we WB stubbornly just went against. And the, as a result, Roy back really kind of got lost in the, the shuffle completely from there onwards. It's one of those lightnings bar that once all the lightning's gone, you can't really regenerate it again. And not that they even really tried. No. So <laughs> not at all. It was really just right back stone. And this guy, Nike, like you say, he probably had a shelf life, but he really could have got a lot longer out of the, the push that initially would have been envisioned for him after the, the you know the, the punk matches that hell in the cell, but it slowly went downhill, slowly just got less and less to the point where you know, he's fighting Mark Henry in a very throwaway match over bodybuilding, I think, or, you know, like some really, really poor sort of story structure. And he was really just forgotten about really after that. Unfortunately for, for him, that's his path. But for Mox, it's it's really going upwards here. He's fighting in a pay-per-view now against the biggest star, like you say, in WWE at the time and John Cena. So how do you think, first of all, before we get into the meat and bones of the match, how do you think Moxie has handled himself in this particular feud at the moment? You know, you could, like you say, he is the sort of the, the, not only the glue that kind of holds them together, but he's the dynamite that can explode them at any time. I think, I think he's fine very well. Like he's not the most, he's not always the most memorable, but he's always not forgettable either. And what I mean, he's always, you know, he's always visible. He's always doing something. He's always a part of everything. So even when he's not the focus, he's still in your mind. And I think he's doing well. Like there are times where I think he's still adjusting to being on the main roster. He's still figuring himself out, but not in a major way. Like he never does any major shifts or differences, but he just, I mean, I don't think, you know, he's finding his confidence. He's finding his groove. When he's doing his interviews, he's trying out how he talks on the, he talks to the camera and how he's, and um, they would all take a turn speaking to a, camera looking down at it and I love to look down at it because it's made him in a very dominant position you know like they're looking down on us because we are beneath them I just, I like that vibe potential vibe because remember this is WWE you know, I don't know if it was I don't know if it was intentional but it worked it worked and it felt different than other WWE interviews which is considering the considering how WWE interviews usually feel that's a good thing and um it didn't feel overproduced. It didn't feel forced. It felt, it just felt like them. Maybe a little bit of an exaggeration of them, but it still felt like them. And I think that what made him come off as genuine. So we are at now at Elimination Chamber, which is the pay-per-view between Rumble and Mania at this stage. And like I say, it's a big match. John Cena's in there. Ryback's in there. Uh, Sheamus is there. And against the Shield. Jerry, what were your thoughts on this match? And what kind of rating would you give it? It was good. It wasn't as great as I remembered it being. Um, you know, Sheamus and Cena had long beatdown periods, which on one hand I liked because it showed how dominant and how well as a unit this shoot works, but I also felt like it dragged at times. I really thought the Cena beatdown could have gone a little less amount of time so we could have had more Ryback time because the crowd was eating up wanting Ryback in the ring. They were wanting Ryback to get that hot tag, and they... They really went for it when Ryback got that hot tag. 
your linebackers were respecting him. Um, the shield as a unit was working effortlessly. Ambrose was accounting for himself very well. And, you know, it planted seeds of the future. With, it planted seeds with Cena, Ryback, Dissension in the future because they both hit their finishers and Cena failed to save Ryback when Ryback got speared by Roman Reigns and I believe Rollins landed on him for the pin. There were some really good little set pieces in it. Like, fair enough, there was the overdone arcade spot and Cena I don't think is a really great face in peril compared to other choices. But yeah, Ryback was super over. There was a nice spot where like, you know, where he basically just comes in, gets a hot tag and throws him around like ragdolls. It's I, and there's nothing looks better to me than someone getting tossed around like that. Like but um there was a nice close and stretch as well. But the main thing I will say is he got three fairly new stars in here against at this stage where you have really three established stars and they're holding their own and looking really strong. But again there was a few lulls in there the five moves of doom from Cena. Cena wasn't a great face in peril and the bar arcade spot which is now overdone maybe it's just now in 2022 it's overdone but back then it probably was a bit more fresher but there was Ryback was super hot he the, the crowd ate him up and he did what he did well he threw people around like rag dolls and I'm a big fan of that and the main thing I can say is the shield here against three established stars look really they're, again remember the shield are here three months and they're very they're very yeah. in terms of WWE exposure but they are being made look equals to these three guys no, it may look equal, but they beat them. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine in 2022 WWE making that decision. It's part of them realizing they're making that decision now, but they beat them. So they didn't just look like equals. At the end of it, they looked like they belonged at the top with them. And Cena and, went on to WrestleMania. So there's like, you could easily make a really good case that keeps Cena strong before this big match with The Rock. But no, like they, they, they may, not that he doesn't look strong in defeat, but you could easily go over here. But they, for whatever reason, I don't know who these guys have behind them, but the Shield have someone pulling for them. And these guys are made to look like a million bucks here. They made it look, but the only part of it is because they thought they had one major star in Roman and two solid stars in Ambrose and Rollins. So there was no reason not to keep them strong of course you know that type of logic doesn't always work in wwe but that was the logic if you want if you want people to be stars you have to present them as stars plain and simple if you want them to be seen as winners you have to present them as winners uh, and the shield that these guys have to be the best guys in the world or the best wrestlers but if you present someone as the best wrestler whether they are or not you'll perceive them to be exactly you know that's you can't have someone lose 10 matches, consistently lose, and then win the world title and everybody accept him as world champion. <laughs> Big E. <laughs> Big E, exactly. <laughs> no disrespect to Big E. It's not your fault, big man, but that's that's but that's just 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 how it is. You want people, if you want your stars to be accepted as stars, you got to present them as stars. It's simple. These guys were presented as like you say, probably even more than equals than soon to be WWE champion, like an on-fire Ryback and a very solid hand in Sheamus. And they move on for this now. They obviously Mania's on the horizon and they're going to be getting a big tree, another three big guys. We're going to have Sheamus there again. Orton's going to get into the mix along with the big show. And the build is not rocket science. It's not exactly a great build, but what did you make of it? Well, fun fact, I went to, I was actually going to WrestleMania 29 and I did go to WrestleMania 29. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I was really excited because I wanted to see what the Shield got for Mania that year. And at the time, I wasn't that excited with the trio they got. I wasn't I wasn't huge in the Big Show. I wasn't I was okay with Sheamus, and I wasn't really an Orton fan. I was kind of burnt out on Orton at that point. But looking back, I see 
again, what WWE was thinking, two consistent wrestlers, and Orton, who they always presented as more of a legend and star than he actually was. So I see what they're going for, and they want it, and they made him the opening match. So I can see they want a hot act to open Mania. It makes sense, but I wish they had, really, I wish they had a more exciting path. I thought, what? sorry, I just thought, no, 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 sorry, Jerry. I was just going to ask you, like, the build itself, though, do you feel like this build was sufficient enough for a mania? Like, it was really just centered around can these three individuals coexist, which was really just sort of the, the build for the last match. Yeah, it, it was very cookie-cutter. It wasn't... It didn't feel like a big mania match build. It felt more like we need to give the Shield a match. We're going to throw these three together, do the, you know, and give them the can they coexist to take down the Shield and call it a day. It didn't feel like a lot of thought was put into how what the Shield's first Mania match was going to be. Did anyone really care if the big show turned or not? Because at this point now, like, like that's been, you know, <laughs> no. He's, he's already torn loads already now by 2022. <laughs> but at this time, he'd already torn three times in the two years prior to this match. So, like, did was anyone really care that much that this guy could possibly turn on Orton and Sheamus? I didn't care. Like, I have no animosity towards the big show at all, but at this point, it was so played out. You know, he's been a good guy. He's been a bad guy. He's been a tweener, a good guy, a bad guy. It's like a, it's like a hamburger steak. You flip it too many times, it, you ruin it. And that's what they did with the big show. They flipped him around too many times and ruined him. It was a very disappointing setup and a disappointing path for the Shields WrestleMania. The only exciting thing about it was it was the Shields in a trio match at Mania. You know, with the build did have a few matches with 3MB and a very surprising tag team of Ryder, Justin Gabriel, and Cali. It wasn't exactly the sort of yeah, the build that could really heat either of these two up. But like you say, it wasn't the worst either. It could have been a lot worse, and it was passable at probably best. And to, to be an opener now, this match is the first match that's going to kick off WrestleMania. Did you feel that this match was a sufficient opener to go on, considering the, the three opponents involved? I don't know if it was efficient, but I don't blame him for going with it because you were going to get that opening show pop with you were going to get that opening show pop with the shield coming up because of how hot they were. So I get the idea of making this the opening match, but I think if they had hot, three hotter opponents in, I can't think off the top of my head who I would have put in at the time, but if they had three hotter opponents, I think this could have been a rocking 10, 10 minute, 15 minute opening match to get the crowd really pumped. Because there's one thing the WrestleMania 29 crowd really needed that night, and they were lacking it a lot of times with something to get them really pumped. And it did not do that. Like, it's their first mania. So, like, you know, these guys are going to be pumped for this, and they look pumped coming down that. They look really formidable as they do always mm -hmm. coming out through the crowd. And Ambrose, like, he's a far cry nearly from the Ambrose that was in FCW in the Indies. He's not messy. He's not grungy. He looks slick. He looks very calculated and in control. And he looks badass. Yes, he does. And all three of them, as they're coming out, the, the crowd intro, I always love the crowd entrance. You know, it just gave them another element of they can come from anywhere and they just do their own thing. And they all come over the bear, you know, they all come into the ringside area and they all just look ready. They don't have to get ready. They're just ready. And they're against three, like I said, again, like the previous match, three established stars. Now, Fair enough, it's a little bit of a lower because motivated Orton doesn't really show up in this feud. He's just kind of there. Same with Big Show. He's not exactly giving his socks. And Sheamus is always dependable, whether you like him or not. And he's not the most exciting guy in the world, but like, he's, he's, he's solid at very best. And he's solid, and I think he was motivated this match. But the Shields look like they're presented as a bigger deal. And that like that's, that's so... Like, 
unheard of in modern day WWE where these three guys are only in here three or four months and they look like they're on par with guys who are there working there these last six, seven years. It's actually frustrating to see how well the early months of the Shield was handled because it shows that WWE can do it. They just usually choose not to. They do. And like the thing is, I will say about this is like, this was still a rarity for 2012, 2013. Like this didn't happen either. Like people used to come in and just be forgotten about within a couple of weeks as well. Like Fandango, for example, he comes in at this WrestleMania. He is yes. like six months later. He's just another guy. Not that he's a great example of a star, but you get what I'm trying to say. They, they push for a guy for a certain amount of time, month or so on, and then it's 50-50 booking. The Shield is yeah. not that. The Shield is not that. And it's very, in fact, you know, I know we are just talking about this era, but just to really quickly say that the Shield will be kept strong until probably up until the point they break up. And that's, being that this is WWE, that's very significant and mind-blowing because usually, like you said, a few months and, okay, done, time to move on to the next thing. This was something that they got correct, and it wasn't an accident. It was just going against their usual worst enemy choices, own worst enemy choices, and refusing to make them. They absolutely flourish in this kind of environment where, like, like again, in hindsight, we know these three guys have three different skill sets and they're very good wrestlers. At this time, Roman is he's green, he's unknown. Rollins has yeah. a very good solid indie career behind him. But again, as a top top WWE talent, he's well to be untested. Same for Moxley Ambrose. These guys, you know, they don't have there's, there's no dependency to give these guys a kind of a push, but it works and it, they're the better for us. Surprise, surprise. I'm not always for putting people in sync or, or swim scenarios because sometimes sync is what the answer is going to end up being. But they were put in the sink or swim scenario. And not only did they swim, they did a marathon, you know, Olympic pool swim where they just made it work for a long period of time. Because you could have put these three people untested, mostly unknown, into their spot and they could have floundered and they did not. And that is to their credit as talents roman ambrose rollins you know regardless of how you may feel about each one individually at this time as a unit they clicked they put in a lot of hard work and they made something that could have failed into a huge success they did a lot of what they did very well like they weren't necessarily blown out and park all the time there were some really good spots in the tlc match and in the elimination chamber match they had but boy and large they just they did everything kept things simple they kept things really strong, and they when they did things, it was executed very well. And Roman's a very good example of that. The guy was limited. He, to a certain point, he was limited for a long time. But he was learning as he goes, and he was really, like you say, putting the work in, keep keeping to his strengths, hiding his weaknesses. It's what you really should do to these kind of guys, and it worked so well. It's the old Paul Heyman specialty, you know, accentuate the positives and hide the negatives, and that's what they did. And this match itself, now, again, it's probably not... A, a great match to look back on you know like at the end of the day like it's it's a it's a very it has a very house show feel to it but the match itself what did you make of it a very house show feel like you said but the crowd was into it the crowd was into the shield and um i thought sheamus was motivated and um i thought he did quite well in this match and i thought once again the shield as they always did work well as a unit you know picked their spots didn't do anything major um, I think at one point Rollins did a dive and kind of creamed himself on the outer <laughs> barricade. He, he threw himself on Orton. Threw himself like a lawn dart. 
Yep. You know, and I know Ambrose at one point he took the clubbing chest blows from Sheamus, and you know he did the, he did that wild kicking his legs in the air, which might have been at the time the most over the top Ambrose had been. But even then, it wasn't that bad. You know, it was more so it was more of a get me out of this get me out of this predicament type of situation. And I think if I remember correctly, Ambrose got the pin at the end. There was some really good spots, like you say, the club and one the. The big show ripping off Andrew Ambrose's top and giving him that big palm, you know, like it's yeah. simple pro wrestling. It's nothing simple wrong. pro wrestling. Oh yeah, and then Rollins getting hit by that RKO when he jumps off the top. And the, the first thing I thought was like, God, these two are going to have an even better RKO in two years' time. Like, and you had you had Sheamus in there, Reigns, who would have a very big Survivor Series moment in 2015, I think, in 2016. You had Rollins, Ambrose, oh, sorry, Rollins and Orton that would have. A really, really excellent match in, in two years' time, and it's fantastic watching these guys in hindsight. Even though it's most probably unspectacular match, but like it's just great watching these guys and how they began and what kind of shine they got in this particular match because they did shine. Oh, they did shine, and it's very significant to watch because you see all the pieces still coming together. The crowds into them; they're still like their act is good. Their act is great, and they're still putting the pieces together to make it even better because the work is never done. And that's commendable. And even though the match isn't anything special, it does what it's supposed to do. It gives the Shield another solid win, this time on perhaps the biggest stage they've been on yet at WrestleMania. And these two matches, now Dave Meltzer gives the Force Night Elimination Chamber 3.5. He gives this one here 2.7. What do you think of these matches and your sort of rating star scale, Jerry? I gave 3.5 to the Elimination Chamber, especially especially for the hot tag at the end. I thought that really elevated it. The main match, uh, yeah, 2.75. It's nothing special, but it's nothing offensively bad either. It's it's kind of there, but it, I do think it's worth watching to watch the continued evolution of the Shield, especially in hindsight. It is. It's, it's, it's really good watching, especially the three matches at the very start of the career at TLC and these two here that we've covered today. Just to see these guys... They have the pieces here. They have the puzzle in front of them, speaking-wise, you know, in-ring-wise, charisma-verbal-wise. They have the pieces, and they're slowly starting to put them together to make themselves into WWE top stars. Like, Ambrose, we know he can speak. We know Rollins can wrestle. We know Ambrose can wrestle. Reigns has got, got definitely got something. He has that aura about him, that physical charisma, that, you know, there's something there. And these guys are really, they're, they're picking up the slack for each other. Again, like you say, their strengths are on show. There's no weaknesses really shown. And if there is, I haven't seen them yet. The Shield was always hot in their initial run. And they always worked their butts off to remain hot. And that's not always easy to do. Everything, everything in wrestling has a shelf life, some longer than others. And they just were able to get as much coal into the stove as they could to keep the heat going. I will say that the, the, the pros of this match were definitely the Shield were, on, were were winners. It came off looking like really strong against very big established stars. Rollins in particular, I think, was the MVP of the match. Ambrose was kind of, I wouldn't say he was anonymous necessarily in the match, like in terms of getting a shine, but he, he went about what he did very well and nothing that really can be seen as really too negative. The cons, obviously, I think was the big show was fairly the big show in here. He was plodding. He was, you know, his usual unmotivated self. Orton was... Short but sweet, he looked like when he does things really well, especially his chemistry with Rollins, it looks like a million bucks. But as you know, it was very little of him reading this match until the uh, the RKO. And like 
at the end of the day, I think I agree. There was a turn at the end of the big show that again we all probably saw coming, but we none of us really cared about. But I remember being there live and just kind of threw my hands in the air. I was like, "Yep, he turned." <laughs> that was my legit reaction. Well, Jerry, first of all, let me thank you again for coming on the show. But before we leave, we'd like to ask everyone. We like to ask everyone what their favorite John Moxley, Dean Ambrose sort of moment or memory is. What is the height of fame or height of wrestling awesomeness for you when it comes to John Moxley? I'm going to give you one I was dead live for. Um, all, I, I went to All Out Weekend last year, and I was at the GCW War Games show. And at the end of the War Games match, Mark, Matt Cardona came out, did an open challenge, and G. Raver comes out. At first, we were kind of deflated. It's like we were hoping for a bigger surprise you know nothing against g raver but we were hoping for someone special someone we weren't expecting and g raver came out with these druids and he would leave the ring and Cardona would start beating up the druids and the druids would leave the ring except for one who was standing behind Cardona, and we're losing our minds because we're putting two and two together at this point and sure enough it's john moxley and john moxley does you know, hits the Death Rider. One, two, three, John Moxley is GCW world champion. And I am loose. I am going crazy. Like, I get so excited, I fall to my knees. I kid you not. The swagger in that druid, you know that that was so. Yeah, was John, once the swagger came on, I started, forgive my language, I started going, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Um, I'm going to give you a fun fact, though. I almost did not see that moment because I forgot about the open challenge that Codona was going to do. So I'm trying to leave our. <laughs> yeah, I know. I went to leave the arena because I'm trying to get my lift. I'm trying to get my lift so I can beat the crowd. So I'm leaving the arena. As I get to the door, the doorman goes, there's one thing left. He didn't say what it was, but yeah, the doorman goes, there's one thing left. And I looked at him and I said, is it worth it? He looked at me and goes, it will be. You go and tank that doorman right now. <laughs> I, I wish I could. I gave him a fist bump on the way out. On the way out, I put up my fist and I go, you saved my ass. And he just laughed and fist bumped me. I gave him all the respect in the world because I would have cried if I had missed John Moxley winning the GCW World Championship. Easily the biggest moment on the show. <laughs> Easily, oh by far, it was the biggest moment. Other than glass getting shattered over me during the war game match, I kid you not, that was the biggest moment of the show. Previously attacked Moxley in this kind of manner, you know, like and it was like this is really good comeuppance he's getting here. And of course, Macaroni, he was he's such a good indie heel at the moment. He is doing that absolutely knocking it out of the park in terms of he is knocking it out of the park, and he's knocking the park because he's the type of guy you want to get their ass kicked and you enjoy it when it happens. So when he got his just desserts from Moxley, and it's John Moxley appearing in a company that they've been teasing for a while you know, having a match in for a while. So when he appeared, it's like, yeah! And I was just so pumped. I I left with the biggest smile on my face that night when I went back to my motel. It was just, it was just wonderful. And the reason it's the biggest moment for me is because I was there for it. And that's why we love pro wrestling, them kind of moments. You know, we look back and those are the kind of moments that we think, like, we know, obviously, it's, it's still at the end of the day, a lot of sweaty people just rolling around in their underwear, but we love it. It's pro wrestling. It's the soap opera for us. And these are the moments that you want to look back and think, God, I was there for that or I remember that. And that's a, such a good moment. And Matt Cardona played his part wonderfully. And of course, Moxie, you know, at this stage, he's super hot. He is super hot. And, you know, just one quick moment. I was at All Out also, obviously. I was in the Voices of Wrestling Suite, and I was the only one chanting for Moxley when he was wrestling Kojima. 
I was, it was such a lonely island to be on. Everyone else is going, let's go Kojima! And then there's this one lone voice going, let's go Moxley? <laughs> no matter what was happening there, everyone was going to be the winner because that was a really cool match. That, no one that was a really cool match. It was awesome being there live. To think at the start of 2019, did you think, of course, this is going to be a match in the next three years? I certainly didn't. I definitely did not. You know, and just and I'm excited to see what match Moxley gets when I see him live in April. So I think if Danielson will be involved, and I think that's listen, sign me. I don't care who they're against. This this team, they're absolutely knocking out of the park. They're giving me what I want, pure pro wrestling violence, and it, they just look so good. Like I don't know, obviously when this show will be probably out in about three weeks after this moment, but they just had that Wheeler Yuda segment, and if you haven't seen it, go out of your way. It's, it's awesome. It's awesome. And I think that's just what, in general, I like about Moxley. It's not just that he's awesome, but he just oozes pro wrestling to me and what I want out of pro wrestling, and that's why I latch on to watching him. Like, I'm not a huge fanboy in the sense of, like, obviously, I, I can be critical, like, and I'm going to be very fair when it comes to Moxley. But oh, absolutely. He's a fascinating character. Like, if I'm reading his book, it really inspired me to say, you know what, I want to know about this guy. I want to look back at more things. And no, no better way to sort of have a podcast and document this sort of stuff by obviously going back and revisiting a lot of this stuff. And it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal body of work. Sometimes to understand where someone's at, you got to look at where they've been. That's why I think podcasts like this are excellent because – it's fun to look back and see what Ambrose John Moxley was at the very beginning. But the, the reason why we look back as well is like if you haven't seen something, it's good to rock, like you say, look back and see where they come from. But especially with modern day AEW, like they reward this kind of stuff. You've seen it with the sort of the punk homages and the Easter eggs within the MJF feud. It's great being rewarded for being a wrestling geek like ourselves to be able to say, I remember this is the throwback to this, and this this is really rewarding as a viewer. <laughs> Absolutely. I appreciate when wrestling treats me as if I'm smart. And that's something we unfortunately haven't felt when we watched WWE in the last probably decade. And that's been generous. I'd say it's even longer in decade. But uh, <laughs> Jerry, thank <laughs> you so much for coming on. Where can people find you on Twitter? And what's, what's a good thing to look up about you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Jarius underscore Jer. Um, and if you want, if you feel froggy, I have a link to a book I put out at the top of my profile. If you want to give it a look and maybe purchase it, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Awesome. If you don't know Jerry's work, you know, they are a very good, excellent contributor to the Voices of Wrestling. Like, again, like if you have, if you want to look at one of, the, one of Jerry's pieces, it's, of course, the Eddie the open letter to Eddie Kingston that they did oh, probably about four or five months ago now. But it's a, it's a really good like very well articulated piece it's very interesting and thank you very much i appreciate your words and that's all we have for today folks follow us on twitter at mox podcast and of course myself at awesome joe and we will see you next week as we have adam berger on from voices of wrestling again and he is going to be discussing the independent feud of 2010 2011 of john moxley versus Jimmy Jacobs. What a few that would be. Take care next week, guys, and we'll see you then.